This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. It's Mike Smith in for Simi. As I said earlier, we'll be talking about this report out today comparing auto insurance rates between drivers in B.C., and Alberta. And this report says BC drivers paying a lot more. So check this out. This is one example in this report, a 49-year-old in Surrey driving a 2014 Ford F-150 truck. His insurance for the ICBC, $1,953. Compare that same vehicle, same driver, same coverage in Calgary, $1,380. So a heck of a lot less. There's many examples like that in this report. Here's the hot question today. Should British Columbia allow private sector competition in auto insurance? Would you say, yes, bring it on? Or would you say, no, keep it public? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find that hot question today. Give me a follow while you're there, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. Mike Smith News on Twitter. I'll retweet that hot question there today. Give me a call on the buzz line in this one today, too. Leave me a voicemail there. We may play it later. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. Let's talk about auto insurance in British Columbia. I encourage you to check out my column today in the province newspaper, which you can read online, theprovince.com. And you will see there my column on a report that's just been released this morning by the Insurance Bureau of Canada. They represent the private insurance companies in B.C. They're looking for a piece of the basic auto insurance action here in the province. They've put out a report this morning comparing auto insurance rates between British Columbia and Alberta. According to this report, bottom line it for you, 42% more for auto insurance, up to 42%. That's what BC drivers are paying, 42% more for auto insurance than drivers right next door in Alberta, according to this report. Now, the BC government is already out this morning disputing this report, saying it's not true, it's not accurate. But there you go. Here's the debate now on auto insurance in British Columbia. We're going to have all sides of this debate for you on the show today. Let me introduce you now to Aaron Sutherland, He is the Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Aaron, thanks a lot for coming in. Thanks so much for having me today. Okay, let's talk about this report. Tell me about some of the other highlights in this report that you've released this morning. Yeah, so one thing I want to say is this is an apples-to-apples comparison. When you go to purchase the exact same coverage for the exact same vehicle with the exact same drivers in BC, and when you buy it in Alberta, you're paying a heck of a lot more here. And the big difference between BC and Alberta isn't, you know, the claim size, isn't payouts, isn't something like that, because those are pretty much the same. The big difference is who you have to purchase in from. In Alberta, you have a choice. You can shop around. You can find those savings. Here in BC, you have to purchase it from ICBC under their monopoly. And because of that, you are paying a heck of a lot more. Okay. One of the things that the BC government is saying today is that, well, hang on a second here, because Alberta, under the previous NDP government and Rachel Notley, had put a cap on insurance rates. You couldn't hike them up more than 5%. Now you've got a new conservative government there under Jason Kenney, you remove the cap. And so the BC government is saying, well, hang on, because insurance rates are going to go through the roof here in Alberta, or they already have. Yeah. So how do you respond to that? Yeah, and look, so Alberta had a rate cap. BC still has one. You know, rates the BCUC limits rates to 6% or so each year. 
Uh, that's as high as ICBC can take them up. And Alberta isn't a perfect system. I'm not going to pretend it's all sunshine, rainbows, unicorns over there. Uh, but again, the average price they're paying is a heck of a lot less. When you look at what specific drivers are paying, it's a heck of a lot less. Uh, and again, a big difference is that they can shop around, they can find those savings. When, with regards to price increases, ICBC has been talking about Alberta and, you know, they've basically been chicken little on this file for a long time saying, oh, prices are going to go up, prices are going to go up. Alberta removed the rate cap in August of last year. And since that time, all the insurance companies in that province have brought in rate increases. These quotes and this comparison is for current prices that include rate increases in Alberta. They don't include ICBC's rate increase that's going to come down next month. But even with that, they're still showing Drivers in Alberta are paying hundreds of dollars less for the same level of coverage because they're able to shop around. It's so these are current. These are current rates, and in, in other words, is what you're saying. These so, are, like, when were these rates? When did you guys get these quotes from? Jan, Jan, this month, January. January. And we, we didn't get them. Okay. MNP went and got them. They obtained them for policies effective in January. They included the Alberta rate increases. They don't include ICBC's rate increase. Uh, but again, they already show drivers there are paying a heck of a lot less, and it's an apples to apples comparison of the exact same level of coverage. We're talking about okay. one million liability, same deductibles, uh, everything else. Okay, MNP is a big accounting firm in Canada. You guys hired them to do the do the study yeah absolutely. do the report okay you know we we felt we're pretty sure it's cheaper in alberta we asked them go check it out what they came back with confirmed Let, let's talk about some of the comparables that you've you've uh listed in this report a couple of them that jumped out at me and i mentioned this one earlier so for example a 49 year old guy in surrey he's driving a 2014 ford f-150 in BC, $1,953 for his insurance with ICBC. In Calgary, $1,380. This is already the $600 difference for same driver, same vehicle, same coverage. Obviously, different cities. I mean, okay, is Cal- you're saying Calgary is comparable to Surrey? Yeah, I mean, big city, driving uh, condi- ur- urban area, uh, yeah. similar accident rate. I mean, the accident rate in BC, Alberta, as much as uh, we all think British Columbians are terrible drivers, uh, the accident aren't they? Rate, no, in our two. I problems. mean, I've I've already getting I'm already getting tons of emails from people this morning saying, "Oh, this is because BC drivers are terrible; they get into more accidents." I'm not going to say BC drivers are on are all great, mm-hmm. uh, but when you look at the accident rate in BC and the accident rate in Alberta, they're pretty much the same. What What about it? We just had a snowstorm in Vancouver there last month, and there were like 1,800. Or no, I think it was more than that. There were thousands of claims there yeah, to the probably, ICBC it, Claim Center. It's probably snowing in Calgary right now. <laughs> so they're getting lots of accidents too. Yeah, I mean, again, when you look at the accident rate, you know, accidents per capita, it's essentially the same between BC and Alberta. This isn't an accident rate issue. This is a who am I purchasing insurance from? Uh, am I am I buying it from a company that is forced to give me the best possible price? Uh, in Alberta, I am. In BC, I'm not. ICBC can charge me whatever they want because I have no choice but to purchase it from them. All we're saying is it's time that we end that. Yeah. We need to open ICBC to competition. If they are as effective and you know great as they say that they are, then nothing would change. But given how defensive they are to reports like this, it tells me they probably know deep down they are not and that if we open them to competition and gave drivers a choice – British Columbians would take their business elsewhere. They would find those savings. And again, I think that's oh. why we're seeing the response we're seeing. Today. Okay, speaking to Aaron Sutherland from the Insurance Bureau of Canada, representing private insurance companies, the, one of the common complaints I hear about this is that if you did this, if you did what you're suggesting the government do, let ICBC compete for basic auto insurance against private companies, that you guys would just cream off all the low-risk drivers. There's just basically easy money from drivers who are very unlikely to get into an accident and all the bad drivers 
and distracted drivers, they're going to get stuck at ICBC. So that's why they don't want to do it. So don't let them do that. If Let's yeah. open ICBC the smart way. Let's give drivers a choice, but let's not let other companies come here and just cream the crop. And do it the same way they do it in every other province, which is if a company comes to BC, they start selling auto insurance, they get 10% of the market, force that company to take 10% of the high-risk drivers. That's how it's done in Alberta. That's how it's done in Ontario. That's how it's done in other provinces. And that's how it's done in most other jurisdictions in North America. And that eliminates that you know idea that private insurance companies can just come and take whoever they want. You make them insure everyone. You make them do it by their market share. That creates a level playing field that makes it even for them and that makes it even for ICBC. And again... Under that structure, if ICBC was the best game in town, nothing would change. But when you look at Alberta, like I mentioned earlier, the previous Alberta government had brought in that cap on uh, rate hikes. The new government removes the cap. If you just do a Google search for insurance rate hikes in Alberta, there's been lots of headlines in the past few weeks about people getting slammed with 30% rate hikes for their auto insurance in Alberta. So isn't that what's going on? Haven't people gotten gotten big rate hikes there? Yeah, some people have. Uh, but again, it's not a perfect system. But on average, and the quotes we've seen, even with those rate hikes, they're still paying a heck of a lot less. Uh, and yeah. do a quick Google search on ICBC, and you're going to see a whole bunch of people have been getting massive rate, incre- rate increases here in this province as well. Is it is it possible, like, let's say someone's thinking to themselves, gee, I wonder if, if my insurance really is that inflated in BC. Could you go online to a private insurance broker in alberta and type in you know your vehicle and your year of the, your vehicle and see what and just get a you know a rate quote yeah absolutely. and just compare it you know you could do it for yourself yeah you know take your renewal take what coverage you've got go you know google online buy auto insurance alberta because you can do it online there uh yeah you can't do that here <laughs> type in yeah. information and see what the price that comes back well, and what would people find you think typically uh, i think nine times out of ten it'd be a heck of a lot cheaper on really? the side of the rockies okay uh and, and again i think uh, anyone who who questions whether or not the validity of this report i would encourage them to do that um, again, by every measure we have seen, it's pretty clear we're paying a heck of a lot more under ICBC's monopoly, and that's kind of a theme for monopolies. They're not particularly effective, and they don't particularly bring about the best prices. So you're not saying privatize ICBC or shut ICBC down. You're saying that let ICBC compete against your guys, against the private sector guys. I'm saying right? let's start focusing on what is in the best interest of British Columbians. Let's stop focusing on what's the best interest of our crown monopoly insurer. And let's start forcing our monopoly to compete for our business. And, you know, again, let's bring in that competitive incentive. Let's force ICBC to find those efficiencies, to find uh, new innovations that keep prices down. Because to date, they haven't brought those in. Online sales is just the latest example. Like, they continue to be unable to deliver that. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Other companies can. Let's invite them to come to BC to sell the exact same coverage. And if they can sell it at a more affordable price, that's what this is all about. We continue talking about auto insurance in BC. That's our hot question today, by the way. Should British Columbia allow private sector competition in auto insurance? Yes, 69%. No, 31%. At CKNW on Twitter. And phone me right now on the open line, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. My guest, Aaron Sutherland, Insurance Bureau of Canada. Let's go to Tony in Surrey. Hi, Tony. Good morning, gentlemen. I want to just preface this call by first stating that I'm not an ICBC fan, and I'd be the first to support competition. But one of the things that your guest is saying kind of confuses me, and I'm using the example that he said between Surrey and Calgary. My daughter, who lived in Surrey, moved to Kamloops just 
changing her address saved her $700 in insurance. Now, is he comparing the high, one of the highest jurisdictions in BC with, you know, Calgary? I'd be curious to see what that 49-year-old person with the F-150 would cost, in, even within jurisdictions within BC. Uh, okay. I know that ICBC weighs it all differently. So yeah, I so you're, you're yeah. saying your daughter's paying less in BC than she was in Alberta? No, no, no. I'm saying oh. my daughter's paying less in Kamloops than she was in Surrey. And oh, so oh. ICBC does not charge the same in every jurisdiction. If you well, go, if no. your address is in Vancouver, depending on where it is, you can get cheaper or more expensive. Well, yeah, it's okay. It's based go. on where your address is. Of course it does. Aaron Sutherland. Yeah, yeah. So, so what the report looks at, I think what MNP was trying to do, was trying to take an urban center looking at urban centers. So that's where you had Surrey versus Calgary. But they also look at what someone in Kamloops pays compared to someone in Medicine Hat. Uh, there's 14 different drivers out there and, and 14 different locations. And again, In this study, I, they compared it, 14 different drivers in this study. Yeah, in 14 different cities. And yeah. so when you look at it, just about every single city you look at, when you compare that to a similar city or town in Alberta, they are paying a heck of a lot more here in BC under ICBC's okay. monopoly. John in Vancouver, hi. John. I think I lost him there. I think I heard him hang up or something. Mike in White Rock. Hey, guys. Um, now, this is going back a little bit. We're talking in uh, the early 90s, but personal first-hand experience my roommate buddy from alberta we were the same age same driving record we actually owned the same car one of the old little volkswagen diesel pickup trucks and i was twice the price on my car insurance as he was because he just kept it insured at his folks place in alberta but we were where did he uh, where did he live in alberta edmonton and where do where were you guys living in van metro vancouver Surrey. Yeah, okay. Surrey. Okay. 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 Aaron Sutherland's nodding his head, saying, "This is what I'm talking about." Aaron. Yeah, we hear this every day. I mean, anyone who knows someone who's moved here from Alberta, from Ontario, from another province, it's always, you know, BC. Bring cash. You're going to need it to pay for your auto insurance. Well, not always. I mean, I've heard some people say they've they they prefer the system here. Nine times. But, out, nine times out of ten. Well, okay. Uh, Mike or Greg in Richmond. Hey, Greg. Well, hi there. Uh, hi. You know, the whole problem with ICBC was in the inception in 1972 when NDP brought it in. It was to not make a profit. That was how they were going to save money. For-profit insurance. If a for-profit insurance company owned a uh, bunch of liquor stores and the liquor stores started uh, losing money and they took money out of the for-profit insurance to prop up the, the uh, liquor stores then uh, and they didn't have enough money to cover claims, they'd have to raise the rates. That's the whole problem. For the last uh, uh, 20 years, the Liberal government was taking money out of ICBC to balance their books, uh, 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 pulling the wool over the people of BC's eyes, okay. and now we're paying for it. Okay, Ron, thank you for the call. Well, yeah, I mean, the Liberals did do that. They did take some optional capital out of ICBC for sure. And I've keel hauled them for that. Like I've, I've ripped them a new one for doing that, but they took about a billion bucks. I think Aaron, yeah, 1. they 2, took, a, I believe. yeah, they took 1.2 billion out of ICBC over several years. And here's the thing though. ICBC's losing a billion bucks a year. Okay. So even if the liberals hadn't taken that money, uh, ICBC still be bleeding losses. Yeah, I mean, ICBC has has. Frankly, I mean, that doesn't. I'm not letting the liberals off the hook, okay? Because they did use ICBC like a piggy bank, and they deserve to get hammered for that. But you know, 
the thing is, though, I, even if they didn't take the money, I think ICBC still be like a basket case right now. I think the key things you need to look at here is what are you getting for your insurance coverage? And then what are you paying for that? And so when you look at the average payout for a claim in BC and Alberta, it's pretty much the same. They're both around $50,000. But again, we here in BC... And your point paying, there is that you're saying that the two provinces have got similar systems, basically. Everything the province except introduced the, except last what it cost. year... Everything the BC introduced last year was more or less modeled on Alberta, right? You got the yeah. same similar minor injury cap. You know, this whole um, expert report limits, those are modeled on Alberta as well. You get the same average payout but you're paying much, much more here for that. Okay. So you've got to start asking yourself, what is the difference between BC and Alberta? And it's really, who are you buying this from? He's got about a minute left. Alex and Delta, hi. Hi there. How are you doing, Mike? Just Good. two things. is yep. One thing is I want competition because ICBC actually screwed me over. I got into an accident over two years ago, and they go, because a person's a senior citizen, we're not going to help you because we cannot reclaim our money. That's number one. Number two is, question for the gentleman from the insurance bureau is what is the thing for uh, senior citizens and are they covered in the other provinces and uh yeah oh, okay it. we got 30 seconds there in sutherland yeah so this report looked at uh two seniors uh one living in north vancouver i believe and the other living in Kelowna. Uh, and both times it found they're paying a couple hundred bucks more here in BC uh, than Alberta for the exact same coverage using the exact okay. same vehicle. Okay, you're certainly shaking it up here today with this report, and we got a good debate going, and we're going to cover it thoroughly on the show today. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. That is Aaron Sutherland. He's the Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. You heard my conversation in the last segment with Aaron Sutherland, Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. They are out with a report today comparing auto insurance rates between BC and Alberta. They represent the private insurance companies. Alberta has private insurance. The report says Alberta drivers pay less than BC drivers. This is maybe not a surprise. They are saying, let us compete. Let's open up the market to private sector competition in auto insurance in British Columbia. Well, let's find out if the BC government is into that. David Eby, he's the Attorney General of BC. He's the Minister responsible for ICBC. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you. When I take a look at this report, there's a lot of comparables that really jump out at here for me, and I'm sure for a lot of people. It says that British Columbians are paying up to 42% more for their auto insurance than drivers are paying in Alberta. How do you respond to that? Well, there's there's two pieces to it, Mike. One is um, I certainly acknowledge that people can find uh, cheaper insurance in Alberta. The issue is that they get less insurance for their money. So, for example, if you're in a single car crash in British Columbia, you hit some black ice and spin out, you're covered for $300,000 in injury. But if you do the same accident in Alberta, you're covered for $50,000. And if you don't think that's significant, if you hit a moose and you're rendered quadriplegic or you have to use a wheelchair, if you don't think that's a big difference between 50000 and $300,000, you haven't tried living with those kinds of injuries. Yeah, but... And, and so so the, the cost in part is that the benefits aren't as good. The second piece is... Well, hang on, but just, like let me, just, of, let me, just let me just jump in there. Sure, yeah. Because the Insurance Bureau of, of Canada is saying, okay, the limits are higher and the payouts in British Columbia are higher, they acknowledge that, but they're saying when you compare the actual payouts that people are receiving, they're pretty much the same. Like the average yeah. accident the average accident benefits paid out in Alberta is $5,764 in Alberta compared to $2,885 in BC. Yeah, 
Yeah, and we can wander down a, a technical rabbit hole here, and, and part of it. Well, is, is that, that a, is that a rabbit? No, no. Is that a rabbit hole, or is that just a basic straight up comparison? It's not because they're comparing BC numbers that were reported to the Utilities Commission at a point in time. So for 2018, for the amount of payouts incurred when they report to the Utilities Commission at that point in time, it's not the full amount of injuries incurred in 2018. It's just the amount that they paid out by that point when they report to the Utilities Commission. So they're, they're comparing that point-in-time report instead of the full cost to the full projected cost of the injuries in Alberta uh, to the insurance system. So they're not comparing the same thing. Uh, and, and, but but here's, the, here's the point, Mike. If, yeah. if it's true, if it's true that private insurance companies could offer rates 43% lower for British Columbians, then they should do it. They can write for 50% of the premium dollars in B.C. They can write for all the collision insurance in B.C., they can write for extended third-party liability. They only have 10% of that market. And the reason for that is they, uh, they are either unwilling or unable uh, to put their money where their mouth is. They aren't willing to write for British Columbians. They, they can already compete. And when they try to compete, they don't beat ICBC's rates or they don't beat ICBC's okay. uh, uh, customer experience. One or the other, uh, because they're simply not writing cheaper insurance policies for British Columbians in the areas where they can't already do it. Well, when I talk to the private insurance companies on that, Minister, they're saying, well, if you want us to compete, give us all the information so we can compete. Give us all the comprehensive driver records. Give us all the comprehensive data, which ICBC is refusing to do. Sure. Right? So, uh, no, <laughs> no, they're definitely not refusing to do that. Private insurers can get anybody's uh, driver abstract uh, that they want. Any British Columbian can consent to provide that driver abstract to them, uh, ICBC provides extensive reports to the BC Utilities Commission about their expenses, about uh, the number of collisions, uh, about the, uh, the severity of collisions. All of that information is publicly available. And, and so if they don't have the information, let's assume that they're right, they don't have the information, they need the information, how on earth could they write a report that says that they could offer cheaper insurance in BC if on, in the same breath, you're saying they don't have enough information well, to write insurance in British Columbia. We know we have double. When there's a collision in BC, we have double the number of people who are injured compared to Alberta. And well, I think that's what, a serious what, issue for us provincially. Yeah. But when they don't even mention that in their reports, it's, it's, it's a fantasy report. Well, and, what they've and, done in their report, Minister, is they've taken a look at 14 different drivers from different areas of British Columbia, different, ur- different population centers, exact same vehicle, exact same coverage and compared it to similar population centers in Alberta and and did a head-to-head analysis and by the way it wasn't the insurance companies that did it they brought in a big accounting firm MMP to MM, MMP to do it and that's how they that's how they uh, did the comparison that seems to be a pretty apples to apples comparison yeah you know Mike if that's what they had done uh, then I wouldn't have a lot to say but that's not actually what they did so for example they have a, an inexperienced driver listed as paying forty three hundred dollars for basic insurance in British Columbia. Uh, And the actual amount in the most expensive area of the province for insurance, which is the lower mainland, uh, uh, an inexperienced driver with no experience in their own automobile for for basic insurance pays $2,200. So I have no idea where they got $4,300 from. I've talked to, Minister, I've talked to young drivers in in BC that are paying a heck of a lot more than $2,200. That's because they're buying optional insurance, including collision, uh, third-party extended liability, and so on. The basic amount well, that you so need what? to drive in BC, which is what they say they're comparing to, right? They're saying the basic for Alberta and the basic for BC. That's they say that's what they're comparing, but they're not actually let, comparing those. Let things. me let me ask you this: 
if I, if ICBC is so great, why don't you just allow them to compete against these private companies, and then you could put them to shame, and then you'd have a guy, this guy like this Aaron Sutherland guy, would have to, he'd have to leave BC with his tail between his legs because ICBC, you know, ate their lunch because they're so awesome. Why don't you just sure. let ICBC compete with them? Because they have already issued a report saying that if they um, uh, come to our province, uh, the drivers under the age of 20, this is from the same accounting firm, there's a report that they issued last year, the private insurance company, if you're under 20 years old and they were allowed to do that, uh, MNT was projecting a 37% increase in premiums. If you're uh, 20 to 24, a 24% increase in premiums, and 25 to 34, an 18% increase in premiums. Yeah. And the reason for that is that these private insurance companies, when they come in, they don't want to write for everybody. They only want to write for a certain class of drivers, and that means that ICBC picks up the tab for everybody else, when which was would the- result in huge increases for a significant portions of the I would love it. I would love it. If, if it was as simple as um, uh, bringing in private insurance for BC, uh, I would love it. But their own reports uh, tell British Columbians that they would see massive increases but minister, uh, for everybody under the age of 34. This is their own report. Yes, I know, Minister, but when was that report done? It was done in 2018. It was done before you guys brought in a new rate structure for young drivers, wasn't it? Uh, so they project twenty six hundred dollars under full competition. You got minister. You guys are you guys are slant, you guys are hammering you guys are hammering young drivers with huge rate hikes because you restructured respect, the you restructured Mike, the, the premium system. With respect, the facts on basic insurance are different. It's twenty two hundred dollars and change for a, an inexperienced driver in the lower mainland with their own car, which is a fraction of the cost in in this Alberta report for their basic insurance and a fraction of what they would pay in Ontario. And they are still being subsidized by other drivers in the province. And so I I don't mind having a debate about the actual facts of the actual insurance. And it is more expensive for optional for inexperienced drivers. It has to be. They are significantly more expensive to insure. Um, And the uh, previous government's willingness to to, um, ignore that issue resulted in billion-dollar losses, the connection between risk and the amount of the cost of insurance. Well, you guys have been in power for two and a half years, and they're still losing money, aren't they? Uh, so we're very close to break even this year. We saved about a billion dollars, and we have significant reforms coming in the spring. I think we've stabilized ICDC's finances. I think we've stabilized rates, and you'll see that. And uh, I think that we will find a way to provide lower rates to British Columbians. I'm confident in the reforms we're bringing forward, Mike. Uh, just give us a little bit more time, and uh, and you'll see what we've got in mind. Do you think ICBC is an efficient, well-run corporation? Uh, no. No, I think that uh, ICBC was driven into a ditch by the previous government over, over a period of about a decade. They took a money-making corporation that provided low rates to British Columbians. They siphoned money out of it. They ignored very practical recommendations for reform to make sure that it continued to make money and provide low rates. And we ended up in the mess we're in of a corporation losing a billion dollars. So it uh, needed and continues to need significant reforms, which we're engaged in. But when I take a look at the, let's take a look, look at the payroll at ICBC, they got like 6,000 employees there. And you compare that to other insurance companies in Canada of, of a similar size. ICBC is a $6 billion business. They got 6,000 employees. Compare it to a company like Aviva Canada, similar size corporation with $5 billion. They got 3,000 employees. They got half the employees that ICBC's got. Is that efficient? Uh, two, two easy responses to that. Uh, the first is 
that ICBC does significantly more than auto insurance in our province. Uh, when you go into your driver's license renewal, uh, when you do uh, road safety initiatives, uh, ICBC has extensive uh, work that they do in these areas for British Columbians. That's, 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 that. that's 200 million bucks a year with 500 people doing that work. Uh, I don't know where you're getting uh, that number from, Mike, but I can tell you that uh, ICBC has significantly more responsibilities than a private insurance company in Ontario does. And I can also tell you that ICBC CEO earns about one, oh, probably about a tenth of what the CEO of that private corporation earns. And the same would be true for the executive level at that corporation. Minister Eby, I'm going to be speaking to Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson later on the show. He has talked about doing a full-scale review of ICBC. He said he hasn't ruled out private sector competition or maybe even breaking ICBC up and privatizing it. What questions do you think he needs to answer to, for British Columbians? Sure. When they were in power, they did 10 reports in 10 years, uh, including exactly the report uh, that Mr. Wilkinson is describing, looking at best practices in other jurisdictions. Uh, none of those reports, uh, as far as I can tell, did they follow their recommendations. They left us with a huge mess. And even Gordon Campbell, the champion of privatization, looked at ICBC and did not privatize it. Neither did Mr. Wilkinson's government when he was in power from 2013 to 2017. And the reason is they know the same thing that I do is it would increase rates for British Columbians, and the private insurance industry is telling us that them, themselves in their own reports. Okay. And these comparisons to Alberta were made on uh, trumped-up numbers that make absolutely no sense. Minister, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That is David Eby. He is the Attorney General of BC. He's responsible for ICBC. The breaking story this morning, the first confirmed presumptive case of coronavirus in British Columbia, that was confirmed this morning by British Columbia's medical health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, a, Ford, a man in his 40s who regularly travels to China for business, lives in the Vancouver area. He was in the Wuhan province of China, returned to British Columbia last week, assessed on Sunday night, and is now in isolation at home. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry said uh, he's doing. he seems to be doing fine and recovering and doing okay uh, but they do believe this is a presumptive positive for the coronavirus, not confirmed yet, but they believe that's what it is. I guess not a surprise. When I spoke to Dr. Bonnie Henry on the show last week, she told me she would not be surprised if there was a case here in British Columbia. And here we go. There's a lot of fear out there uh, about the situation. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Andre Picard. He's the very fine health columnist at the Globe and Mail. I really encourage you to follow him on Twitter. Andre, thank you for coming on. Hi. Appreciate your time. We got a, a presumptive case here in British Columbia. That, that, does that surprise you, or what are your thoughts on the way public officials are handling this? No, I think it's uh, totally expected, given where the, the origin of the virus, lots of travel between China and B.C. I think the only surprise is we didn't see a B.C. case before Toronto. But uh, no, I think uh, actually sort of good news, uh, the way we've learned, I just listened to the presser, uh, system seems to be working, the person self-disclosed uh, is not that sick, so this is all very good news. Okay, if it's good news, why? Because And, and how is the system working in, in this case? Well, the person seems to have been caught relatively quickly after their return. Uh, he's not too sick, which, you know, we're not sure exactly how uh, lethal coronavirus is because we know about the deaths, but we don't know about the people who get infected but don't get that sick. So the fact that we're testing them and we're finding them is is good news. It means it's not as lethal as, as we thought. 
Okay, you wrote a really interesting column, Andre, about the fear aspect of this, and a lot of it's driven by social media, and there is a lot of concern and fear out there about coronavirus, but as you point out, there are plenty of other uh, viruses out there, just the common flu virus that kills a lot of people, too. What are are your thoughts there about the, the fear that people are feeling about this? Yeah, so it's natural that people are fearful of new things because we're, yeah. there's a lot of unknowns. So what makes us fearful is unknown things. At uh, the other end of the spectrum, we tend to underestimate things that are things we should worry about, like the flu. So the flu kills you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people more than the, the coronavirus, the numbers that don't compare, but we're worried about the, the new thing. And that's, a, again, it's human, it's natural to, to think like that, but we have to try and give ourselves a some context and and try and look at these things with some perspective. Does it make sense or is it understandable that people are concerned or fearful given that in the past 24 hours or so we've seen the number of cases here in China more than double to over 4,000, the number of deaths to more than 100 spreading to other countries. Isn't that a reason to be concerned? Well, I think it's a uh, reason to be informed and uh, on top of it but again you know that's how epidemiology works when something's new it takes a while to to discover it and then it's natural that there's a spike so that's that's not unusual i think what we have to watch is the trend is you know if it doubles every day for the next month then we're in big trouble but i think there's a lot of catching up being done now uh, and again, when we look back at SARS, this is exactly how it worked. There's a big leap in numbers, and they kind of leveled out and, and fell off. So we're we're learning, we're containing the cases, but we don't know. And and again, for some perspective, 106 deaths, 101.2 billion people in China. So it's a very, very tiny uh, problem compared to many other things at this point. I remember back uh, during the SARS outbreak and and covering that story, and one of the things that drove the fear back then was a lot of the, as you mentioned, the unknowns, but also just the the difficulty in getting information because you had different public bodies in different countries, in some cases, declining to share information about what was going on, creating a lot of confusion in the public. Do you think that's improved here with the coronavirus outbreak? All the indications so far is that it's improved a lot. So we know with uh, SARS, China didn't reveal that there's this new virus, this new coronavirus circulating. It took them almost two months. They're very, very secretive. Uh, In this case, it seems to have been a week, maybe two weeks, where they kind of kept it on the on the down low. But they've been very open. You know, we we have these numbers. Uh, they seem to. There's a World Health Organization officials have been meeting in China for two, three days now. Uh, back during SARS, they wouldn't even let them in the country. So it's a very different atmosphere. I think the the regime there has recognized that if you try and cover this stuff up, it, it's harmful more more harmful down the road. And they suffered a lot economically yeah. from SARS as Canada, and I think we both learned some really, really big communications lessons in addition to public health lessons. Speaking to Globe and Mail health columnist Andre Picard, when you take a look at some of the, I guess, some of the unknowns about this this virus, one of the ones that jumps out at me is when are people contagious? Because the public health officer here in British Columbia said this morning that when this man traveled back to British Columbia on a plane, they weren't worried about other people being exposed on the pl- the flight that he was on because he was not symptomatic on the flight. But I've also heard other reports or seen other reports that maybe people can be contagious before they develop symptoms. 
what what is what are the facts there on that well the facts are like many things with the new virus we just don't know so there's been some suggestions that there's been some asymptomatic transmission so transmission from people who don't show obvious symptoms but we don't know we don't know if that's the case it may be in only to say people who are highly uh, have problems with their immune system because we know most of the deaths almost all the deaths have been people with chronic health conditions and that's not unusual either so we don't there's a lot of stuff we don't know we don't know how lethal it is you know there have been uh, alarmist headlines about the death rate is higher than the 1918 flu pandemic uh, which is true on the surface but the real, the real thing we don't know that we need to know is how many people have been infected and are not sick. So there could be yeah. hundreds of thousands of people in China who are infected and didn't fall ill. And again, that would be good news. It would mean that it's not that dangerous a virus, that it's uh, more impactful on people who are already susceptible because of their immune systems. When you talk about the fear that people feel out there about this uh, coronavirus outbreak, Andre, like, you know, sometimes you hear people saying, well, Maybe we should shut down all flights, all air traffic from China, quarantine all travelers. We've seen the United States airlifting American citizens and diplomats out of Wuhan province in China. And some people are saying, why doesn't the Canadian government do the same thing? Do you think some of these demands are going too far or how would you, how would you characterize those? Well, when you talk about public health measures, you always have to look at the benefits and the harms uh, and how realistic they are. So banning all air travel, probably not realistic, uh, not smart for economic reasons. Uh, you strand people. Uh, there's people carry, you know, the reality is people carry diseases on planes every single day. Uh, some of them more lethal than coronavirus, talking about 100 deaths. So I think I think that's too much. Uh, people want to hear, uh, want screening at airports, so why don't we take everybody's temperature? Again, that sounds like a good idea on the surface. Uh, we know from research it's not very effective. You just get a lot of false positives, so you're going to be generating a lot of business for the health system and just clogging it up for no reason. And probably the people will with coronavirus will slip through anyhow, because as we said, some of them can be asymptomatic. Uh, want to, There's calls today, uh, you know, in Toronto to close some schools because they have a chi- high uh, percentage of Chinese students. Uh, that's not going to work either. Uh, things like quarantine uh, sounds like a great thing. Again, the research tells us it's ineffective. So there's all these things. Uh, the public wants officials to do something, and there's a lot of pressure to do something. Unfortunately, there's not a lot to be done. Uh, the sad truth is the best way to treat this is what's happening in BC. Uh, someone feels ill, uh, feels safe to self-disclose and get treated. That, that's how we're going to get this under control. It's not going to be with any uh, draconian measures. And that's, people don't like that answer, but that's the reality. That's what science tells us. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. That is Andre Picard, the very fine health columnist at the Globe and Mail. If you're on Twitter, I encourage you to give him a follow there, Picard on Health, at Picard on Health on Twitter. Appreciate his time today. We're talking auto insurance on the show today and what should become of ICBC. This is all driven by the private insurance companies out raising hell on this today. They put out a report this morning. Comparing auto insurance rates between BC and Alberta, maybe no surprise that they say that 
BC drivers are getting overcharged for their auto insurance. They say up to 42% more expensive in British Columbia compared for the same vehicle, same coverage next door in Alberta, where, of course, they have private insurance. These private companies want a piece of the action in, in British Columbia for basic auto insurance, which right now, of course, is a government monopoly under ICBC. I think this is going to be a big issue going forward here as we get closer to another election. I spoke earlier on the show today as well with David Eby, the Attorney General, who continues to defend ICBC, says they're cleaning up the mess and the dumpster fire over there. Let's check in with the other side now. Andrew Wilkinson, he's the leader of the BC Liberal Party. He's the leader of the opposition at the legislature in Victoria. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. What do you think about this report out from the private insurance companies today showing that they say insurance is a lot more expensive here in BC compared to Alberta? Well, we saw a similar report about a year ago with a similar conclusion, and it raises the question for every one of the three or four million people in BC who are forced to buy insurance from ICBC, is there a better deal out there? And that's the question we want to answer for British Columbians so that they can figure out is there a better deal? And if so, give them that choice. Okay. Does that mean you think that ICBC should be required to compete against private sector companies for basic auto insurance? You know, I'm a lot less worried about ICBC and a lot more worried about British Columbia and their ability to get by and afford to live in this province. We've seen dramatic increases in insurance rates, sometimes going up to $7,000. We've seen the invoices from places like Penticton and Cranbrook. In my own family, we've had one of them double overnight when it was renewed in January. And you start to think, isn't there a better way to do this? I mean, why can't we find out how it's done elsewhere? And why can't we get um, the right kind of authority in British Columbia to put the choices on the table and let British Columbians make up their own minds? Now, we all know that these reports from the private insurers are going to be a little bit selective, and they'll give you the best possible story. But we also know that David Eby spins tales that just have no credibility. He's busy defending this public sector monopoly because he loves the idea of government being in control of as much as possible. And that does not serve the public of British Columbia anymore when our rates are going through the roof. And on top of that, for the last two years, the NDP's bumped a billion dollars a year into ICBC with no end in sight. This doesn't work anymore. So why don't we look at the choices and treat British Columbians with respect so they can make up their own minds? Okay, speaking of a billion dollars, I remember when the previous Liberal government siphoned out over a billion bucks out of ICBC and put that money into general revenue. You guys were using ICBC like a piggy bank over there. Are you willing to admit now that that was a mistake and you should not have done that? You know, when ICBC was set up by Dave Barrett and the NDP government back in 1973, they had this clever idea of, oh, well, we can't have insurance companies making a profit. The profits should go to British Columbians. And the profits from ICBC should go into general revenue to pay for schools and hospitals. And that's what happened about six years ago when in one year ICBC made some money and it was put into general revenue. You can argue now that it could have been put back into reducing premiums for the next year, but we'd still be in the same place we're in today. The point is ICBC doesn't work for us anymore, so why don't we look at the options? Speaking of Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, I've heard from a lot of people who have gotten sticker shock when they open up their renewal notice from ICBC. You mentioned as well about how some people are getting a lot of big rate hikes. Did you say someone in your own family had their had their insurance double? Tell me more about that. 
Well, I don't want to get into family specifics because we've got some privacy issues well, there. Well, you, but... you don't have to say the name or nothing, but just what happened yeah, there. Yeah, you know, I think we've talked about this before. The previous premium was $1,500 and went up to over 3000 You think, well, you know, <laughs> I guess we'll just have to suck it up because we've got no yeah. choice. Why do we have no choice, Mike? Let's sit back and think yeah. about that for a minute. Why isn't there a choice in auto insurance? Because the NDP have this love affair with government control and they think that you should pay whatever ICBC tells you to pay, and that's just plain wrong. Well, didn't didn't you guys have a love affair t- with it too when you were in power for sixteen years? You didn't. You guys didn't break up ICBC when you had the uh, the, the opportunity to do it. Well, we can talk about the past till the cows come home. I'm concerned about serving <laughs> British Columbians now and in the future. And why don't they get to pick and choose amongst sources of insurance? Why do they have to take David Eby's premium increase? ram down their throats your only choice is not to drive or pay david eb and i think we're all getting a little tired of this eb told me this morning that things are better over at icbc i don't think blah 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 is the answer (laughs) to that mike well, I don't know if the dumpster fire is out yet but maybe the flames are going down a bit he said they're getting close to breaking even are you buying that not for one minute i mean they play games with the actuarial numbers that give you the estimated cost in the future they play games with, by trying to go to court and save $400 million, get slapped down by the B.C. Supreme Court, and yeah. leave the courtroom with their tails between their legs. They're now back in court. They may well lose that one as well. So David Eby's advice, you got to look at this. He loses 9 nothing in the Supreme Court of Canada on Trans Mountain Pipeline. He loses 5 nothing in the B.C. Court of Appeal in the same case. He goes to Alberta loses those court cases. He tries to protect uh, child abuse documents from their representative for children. Youth loses that court case. So the day I take legal advice from David Eby is going to be a cold one in July. Okay, let's talk about what you would do if you were in charge and the Liberals win the next election. So are you saying to me right here, right now, that ICBC would be required to compete against private companies for basic auto insurance? I think the first step, Mike, is to get an apples-to-apples comparison. Go to these privates, go to the various other different insurance systems in Canada, North America, and around the world. There are dozens of them and say, give us the quote for these drivers, and we're going to hold your feet to the fire. Don't give us tidied up, clean and uh, unfair quote. Give us the real quote. And then you're going to have to say, which system would be the cheapest and most effective one for drivers in B.C.? Okay, so you're not going to give me an answer to that. I'm I'm asking what you would do, like if you're actually in power. I think ICBC should be open to competition. That's the whole idea, so that people have a choice. If ICBC can compete in that marketplace, then we might still have ICBC. But this idea that somehow you're going to privatize a company that loses a billion dollars a year, who's going to buy that? Okay, you know, well, I, I, I'm glad to hear a little bit more clarity on this, on this point. Now, are you, are you saying that one of the common criticisms of opening up ICBC to competition is that the, the naysayers out there will say that's a recipe for disaster because the private companies will just cream off all the low-risk drivers and make lots of money, and ICBC would get, get stuck with the high-risk drivers. How, how would you guard against that? Look, people have said this about privatization of uh, government-run operations forevermore. They said about railways in Britain. They said about airlines when our Canada was owned by the government of Canada. You can't live in fear your whole life and fret and moan and say, oh, dear, something okay. bad might happen. Let's explore the options and find out how it would work and take it to the people of British Columbia and say, what do you think? Should you have a choice? Here's how it would work for you. And that has never happened in my 35 years living in British Columbia. And it's high time we gave people some of the respect they deserve 
and let them look at the marketplace and figure out what works best for them. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Always good. I appreciate it. This is Andrew Wilkinson. He's the leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. He's leader of the official opposition in the legislature, saying that he, the way I read that, what he said, his personal opinion is open up ICBC to private sector competition, but he was also saying, well, maybe you should, we should study it some more, too, but a little more clarity there, I thought. Let's talk about those intersection speed cameras now. Remember when those cameras, at first they were just the red light cameras. So if they snapped a photo of you running a red light, then you could potentially get a ticket in the mail. The B.C. government recalibrated those cameras to add speed enforcement to those cameras too. So now if you go through an intersection where these cameras are located and you're speeding, you get a ticket in the mail. Ooh, what a nasty little surprise that is when you're opening up your mail to get a speeding ticket. The government expanding the number of locations where these cameras are going to be deployed. Lots of other interesting things when it comes to road enforcement issues in B.C., such as municipalities around British Columbia considering lowering the speed limit inside municipal boundaries to 30 kilometers an hour. Also, distracted driving. Did you know the cops are developing new high-tech cameras to catch distracted drivers? Lots to talk about with my guest, Derek Lures. He is a researcher with uh, Sense BC. That was the group that was set up to fight photo radar. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Derek. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you today? I- I'm great. Thanks for coming on. Let's start with those intersection speed cameras. And I know you guys were definitely anti-photo radar. But the government says, hang on, this is not photo radar. These are speed cameras that are in fixed position at an intersection with a warning sign as you approach the intersection. Do you accept that explanation, or do you think this is just photo radar under another name? Well, I know Mr. Farnworth is uh, probably uh, you know, just getting curious in his chair if he's listening right now, but it is, it is photo radar. You know, it uses radar technology developed by Red Flex Systems in the States to capture the speed of a vehicle going through an intersection and giving a de facto conviction to a car, uh, not the driver, with no penalty points assigned, and you get a ticket in the mail. It is photo radar, just not using vans. Yeah, but I guess that's the key difference, though, isn't it? Like, if people with long memories will remember those photo radar vans, which I personally thought was totally unfair, they could move those vans around. I remember in the old days, they used to park those vans at the bottom of a hill, so people would naturally kind of speed up going downhill, and they were just like, you know, it was like a fishing hole for the cops, just handing people out speeding tickets. Isn't this kind of different? Isn't this more fair if you put the cameras at an intersection, which is a you know dangerous area where a lot of accidents happen? Well, I don't, I don't think it's more fair because what has happened is the government has claimed, and Mr. Farmer said in his press releases, that we're going to put these at the most dangerous intersections where we know that speed is a problem. However, when I uh, inquired with the government to get information on what research they did or do they have the contributing factors at the ISC locations or the intersection safety camera locations where they're going to activate the photo radar, and did they look at contributing factors? The reply I have, and I quote, contributing factors were not considered in the selection process for the ISC locations. So this directly contradicts everything that Mr. Farmer said. And this also then means that this isn't about stopping speeders and speeders that were causing crashes at intersections. This is clearly about something different. And it's something that we've been advocating for a long time that it's more about the money that's being raised. You think it's a cash grab? 
Well, absolutely, Mike. I mean, there's, you know, the government's own data says that there's 700 million trips a year going through these uh, locations where the cameras are currently at 140 locations. That's the red light cameras. And across the years since they've been installed, the average, um, the average crashes, sorry, the average contributing factor for speed was accounted for 57 collisions at those locations across 700 million cars. Okay, you kind of lost me there. What, what's your point? You're, you're saying well, it's, not, it's not as dangerous as the government's saying? Or? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, 700 oh. million trips a year going through these locations, and as one of, of up to four contributing factors, speed over the speed limit was found to be 57 of those crashes. Okay, how many of these uh, speed cameras are deployed now around the province? Uh, I think they've got five currently running across the province that have turned on, that are active. Just five? Um, yeah, I believe it's five. Five is the current information on their website as, uh, oh. as yeah, it's on their There's, website but they're, for switch, five. they're switching more of them on, though, in 2020. Yeah, and, and I bet they are. <laughs> yeah, they, that's what they have said, that they are going to start transitioning to more of these cameras. Do you think that they are unfair? Uh. Yeah, of course they're unfair because they're targeting behaviors that aren't causing the crashes and they're not solving a problem. They're not, you don't have an officer on the street that's getting the person and, and actually nabbing the driver of the car who will have to face the consequences for their decision to break the rules. So, yes, it's unfair because you're just, all you're doing is generating revenue from drivers. And that's something that this province seems to be very good at doing. But isn't it a deterrent, though, if you if you blow through a, an intersection speeding and then you get a ticket for a couple hundred bucks in the mail or whatever it is, isn't that a deterrent to the next time you go, wow, I'll never do that again? I, I suppose it could be, but, I mean, we have people who, uh, for example, get caught with a cell phone in their hand and they get a $500 fine and three points and $1,000 more on their insurance and they get caught uh, sometimes the same day. With the yeah. same offense, we see that regularly through the tweets of the uh, lower mainland uh, police departments. So, if that is not going to stop somebody, why would just a fine in the mail going to be driver um, changing driver behaviors? It's not going to because you can pay to play. Okay, and speaking of Derek Lures, he's a researcher with SenseBC. They're an anti-photo radar group. What about these speed limits that a lot of municipalities are considering, Derek? Like the city of Victoria and other and other municipalities in BC saying, let's drop the speed limit to 30 kilometers an hour inside city limits. What do you think of that idea? Uh, and again, another bad idea. Um, I think that's municipalities that are... Some of the, the larger urban municipalities are the ones that are driving this to start with, uh, where they're being heavily driven and uh, influenced by the Vision Zero crowd uh, and the cyclist lobby, lobbies. And the bonus part to them is that they get to get a heck of a lot of revenue from traffic fines. So if you set a, reason, a speed limit at an unreasonably low limit, they already know, and traffic engineers know this, that the people, majority of people are not going to obey that limit, which means the next thing they'll be asking for is stepped-up enforcement, automated speed enforcement, and start generating more revenues. And, for example, the city of Vancouver last year got $14 million in traffic fine revenues. If they can set that default speed limit down to 30 and get some more automated enforcement, because that's also something they've asked the province to do, you can imagine how their uh, revenues will be growing, and they'll just become more reliant on that money. What's the speed limit now? 
the default speed limit in municipalities is 50 kilometers an hour. 50, right, 50. That, what about if that's you... A, that's a default. Yeah, you can set... The local municipality can change that. Absolutely. What if you live on a street where there's a lot of people doing shortcuts or speeding down your street? I mean, I, I remember living on a street once where... I mean, it was not good. There were lots of speeding cars going down a residential street. What they ended up doing was putting in some traffic calming measures there. They brought in a few kind of speed bumps and stuff like that, and that that seemed to work pretty well. Do you think that's a better tactic, like traffic speeds calming or speed reduction measures like that instead of like lowering the speed limit? Hey, absolutely. Uh, Sense BC is all in favor of um, engineering our way into safer streets. So if the roads can be designed better to mitigate that problem, that's fine. But also understand that anyone that ad- that advocates for that has to be prepared for the other consequence, which will be slower traffic. And yeah. ultimately, our entire economy in the globe is based on transportation. So you're going to be making trade-offs on time, um, economy, costing, uh, issues with you put in too many traffic calming measures so if you make that street let's say super narrow in one way and somebody has to go in a different direction to get to their house you know you're costing the economy so there's a there is a balance that has to be played in there for sure what do you think of the uh, distracted driving regimen that's been brought in and how it's being enforced in bc uh again uh i don't think it's distracted driving that the province is interested in i think it's all about cell phones and uh, you know there's been lots of publicity in the last several months to the half a year on you know police not even seeming to understand the legislation and some calls that change the legislation uh distracted driving via cell phone is not a leading cause of death despite what the province says uh in their media releases and icbc keeps spouting um it is for, for cell phones and communication electronic devices it results in about one and a half if you can use a half person deaths per year of the over 300 deaths that occur in BC every year, and out of the 300,000 collisions that happen every year, yeah. uh, communication electronic devices is found to be responsible for about 50 per year in injury crashes out of 300,000. But you you still got to make it illegal to text and drive, don't you? Uh, I, I'm not advocating for texting and driving, but I'm what <laughs> I'm saying is that the issue of cell phone use yeah. is not causing the mayhem on the roads that we're being led to believe, and it's turned into another giant cash cow for the government. What, what is causing the mayhem? There, well, I, I'll have to backtrack on my own. I would argue there is no mayhem on our streets. You know, they'll say that we have a problem. There's the, I mentioned the Vision Zero uh, advocates before, which actually believe in the province's mission statement is to have zero road fatalities in the province. What's that, wrong with that? Well, it will never be zero. We know it'll never be zero. Sweden, which is the leading uh, country in the world on road safety that where Vision Zero started, had a 28% yeah. increase in fatalities from 2017 to 2018. So okay. you can't, you're never going to get to zero. And are we going to uh, rule ourselves by a police state to get to this mm. impossible number? What are we going to sacrifice? Okay. 30 kilometer an hour municipal speed limits with my guest, Derek Lures. Your calls to him. We got a lot of them. So let's go right to your calls, Eric and New West. Yeah, a couple of comments, Mike, and uh, come from a safety highway safety background. And I, I got to tell you, in my own experience, one of the things that causes the so-called mayhem is stupid drivers who don't know the rules of the road and obstinately uphold the silly speed limits. I mean, you're talking about going to 30 kilometers an hour. 
when you're going to get scoff laws all over the place, it's like he's saying, there's going to be such a revenue boost for the government, they're going to, they're going to love that. You can't legislate for stupid. It happens any, to anybody, anytime. You know, okay, when you and, say and when you said you come congestion. Yeah. When you Sorry, say you came uh, I'll you, just say Mike, yeah. I'll just say it's the congestion, it's the slow traffic, it's the poor engineering, poor road design that causes people to do stupid things out of frustration. Like okay, texting th- while driving. Okay, thank you for the call. Derek, I I imagine you would agree with him, but there's there's people out there who are definitely driving dangerously. Uh, yeah, but Mike, that, there's been people driving dangerously since the invention of the automobile. That hasn't changed. We we haven't had a spike in uh, collisions. We haven't had a spike in fatalities. We haven't had a spike in injuries. Those things haven't happened. But I will agree with your caller there, and something that Sense BC is strongly advocates for is better driver education, retesting, simulations. We had that recent uh, controversy with the snow tires in Vancouver there a couple weeks ago. And again, let's get the people trained so they understand how to drive in winter road conditions. We have technology today that allows us to do simulations. Let's get the people out there and get them trained so they understand the rules of the road. Mike and Langley. Another reason for a lot of the mayhem on the road is cops. I drive commercial vehicle, and the amount of time I'll come up on a, on a backup, and I'll be like, what the heck is going on? You get up here, here's some cops sitting on the side of the road, decide to block one lane of the highway or something, there should be no cops pulling over cars on the highway. The cop follows them to the next exit, pulls them off on the next exit, get them off the highway. The amount of times I see cops just sitting there, I don't know if they're eating a donut or what they're doing, but you'll sometimes uh, they're just sitting there with their lights on, doing all nothing. All right, all right. We're going to go over the donut thing with the cops. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I've seen that very often. Cops blocking the highway? Really? Derek? Well, I, I don't uh, comment on the donuts. I think everyone's had their no, come on. police on donuts. But yeah. I, I will say that, you know, enforcement always seems to occur where it's the safest to do um, because that's where most people are going to speed. If you know, I, I'm not familiar with Vancouver as much, but I see often on Twitter these highway speed traps, and they're in the safest locations possible where people are actually going to go above an artificially low speed limit, which needs to be fixed in my view or our view. And that is where they're going to sit. And when they do sit there, things back up. People slam on the brakes. They panic. They have people pulled over. It changes traffic patterns. Um, I don't think that's where they should be sitting because the crashes aren't occurring on the highways in most cases. Dwight in Richmond. Hi. Mike and Derek, I want to make two quick points. And then, Derek, if you want my contact information off here, I'm happy to give it to you. Uh, The first one with the uh, red light cameras. When you're approaching the red light and you've got speed and distance and all of a sudden the light changes, you're, you have to question whether you're going to jam on the brakes and end in the intersection or whether to speed and go through. That's where the cash cow is, and it also puts lives in danger. Secondly, Derek, um, I don't know if you ever remember this uh, fellow from Port Coquitlam that defended a photo radar ticket unsuccessfully and spent $60,000. There was one photo radar ticket successfully defended in the city of Vancouver, and you're talking to him. Oh, okay. You got a photo radar ticket and you fought it and won? Yes. Okay. And, and they, say that, they say they are not defendable because you cannot cross-examine the two officers, one who's asleep in the back of a photo radar van 
Uh, okay, that, but that, but you're also going. Thank you for the call. But you're also going into ancient history because we don't have these photo radar vans anymore. If <laughs> if you get one of these uh, speed camera tickets at an intersection, Derek, can you dispute that? Can you fight it? Uh, well, everything is uh, defendable in court. You have the right to do that. Although the government is working to move towards a tribunal system and take traffic matters out of courts, which would, of course, benefit them great, greatly and disadvantage the drivers of BC. Um, on your uh, the other comment about the yeah. rear-end collisions at these cameras sites, that is also something that is well documented that you'll typically see an increase in rear-end collisions where these cameras are installed. But sometimes and often or often you'll see a reduction in right angle collisions, which is the goal. But I can tell you that according to BC stats, uh, in the okay. in about five years of data where the cameras are located yeah. at the 140 sites, crashes have stayed the same and fatalities have increased. Wow. Okay. Thank you for coming on. Okay. Thanks very much, Mike. Der- Derek Lures, Sense BC. I love that story out of Victoria this week about the wolf that showed up near the legislature i mean a real wolf kind of like the littlest hobo little male lone male wolf sniffing around the neighborhood (laughs) there we go nice one Dwayne. the littlest hobo yeah you got this wolf uh running around the neighborhood there in victoria very close to the bc legislature well that wolf was captured and safely relocated to new territory uh, much farther away from human contact however there is more to this story than meets the eye listen to this report now from cknw contributor claire allen residents of victoria got a surprising and somewhat scary visit this weekend There's new alarming video from Vancouver Island of a wolf that has been spotted roaming around homes in the Victoria area. The animal confidently striding along the sidewalk on Michigan Street towards Montreal Street. People are being told to bring their pets and small children indoors. Cheryl Alexander is a Victoria-based conservation photographer who has studied wolves, and she was on the scene as the situation developed. It turned out that he had gone up a driveway in a just a bungalow house in James Bay and had gone in between a garage and the fence and was basically huddled back in behind this area. I ended up there at the same time and the police were there. There were quite a few police and they were basically trying to keep him contained there to wait for the conservation service to come and tranquilize him. However, this wasn't just any wolf. This was a special wolf. It was a wolf that Cheryl had been studying and photographing for almost a decade. He's known as Takea, which is the word for wolf in the traditional language of the Coast Salish indigenous people and he mysteriously arrived on Discovery Island in 2012, around the same time as the local Sanhee chief, Robert Sam, had died. Takei arrived in the islands in May of 2012. I knew he was there from the media, you know, there was media reports, but he was, he was very invisible. People didn't see him, people forgot about him, and 
in 2014, I actually, is the first time I actually saw him and heard him howl. And that sort of set me on a course uh, to learn about his life because I just couldn't believe he was out there. There are a few wolf packs on Vancouver Island, but Takea remained alone on Discovery Island for the past eight years. And that's what has made him so unique. What's normal is for a wolf to disperse and leave their pack. So, you know, more normally would be a few months to a year, maybe. A wolf would um, be wandering and trying to meet up with another female who also had dispersed and was looking for a mate. But for a wolf to choose to stay alone for eight years is, I think, virtually unheard of. And as far as I know, he has not ever left the island until now. Takea's solitude was interrupted in 2016 when an unfortunate incident transpired on the island. A family arrived on the shores of Discovery Island with the intent to set up camp. They had ignored warnings about the lone wolf, and they also ignored the island's strict no-dog rule. Shortly after arriving, they came face-to-face with Takea. They were cornered while on a hike in an off-limits area and forced to race to safety. With no cell phone, they called for help using a marine radio. The MV Charles made its way to the island. Two armed fishery officers happened to be on board. So when they arrived, they located the family very quickly and uh, provided some assistance and escort back to their boat. This was the first time Takea had an encounter with humans, and it suddenly put his fate into question. Cheryl says it was this incident that inspired her to create a documentary to share the story of the lone wolf. It was very uh, scary in a way for me to go public uh, with what I had been learning about him. Initially, when I started to make the film, I had decided that I would not release it until he was no longer on the islands. But when his life was threatened a few years ago with this lighthouse rescue incident, and they were contemplating whether they would... um, kill him or do what they call use lethal control, I all of a sudden realized his life was a pretty tenuous, if anything happened, if people did stupid things, so that he needed a bit of advocacy and protection. Cheryl believes that Takea finally left Discovery Island because his resources had simply run out. We don't know why he left there. I suspect it may have been that he was hungry and having trouble uh, catching seals at this time of year because his diet is almost 100% seal. And we've had so many storms in the last month that it make, would possibly have made it very difficult for him to hunt like he normally does. Plus, he's an old wolf, and as he's getting older, it obviously becomes harder for him to hunt as well. And he's on his own, so he doesn't have a pack to hunt with. After being tranquilized by conservation officers, the decision was made to relocate Takea up island near Souk. It's a decision that Cheryl supports. If they took him back to the islands, there is, again, a good chance he might just leave again and end up back in the city, and the outcome may not be as positive. The policy in BC is... Currently, that they don't relocate problem large carnivores, they kill them. So 
if he came back and got into trouble in some way, it's possible it might end up uh, not as good for him. Now that he has been relocated, what does the future hold for Takea? Cheryl says that the lone wolf faces some challenges, but she's hopeful that Takeo will continue to thrive. It won't be his territory. He'll have to find his own territory. He'll have to hopefully be able to feed himself. Uh, It's hard for a lone wolf to feed himself, especially trying to take down things like deer because uh, they rely on the pack to do that. It's, It's hard for one animal to take down a big animal. And so I hope he can figure out how to uh, survive, how to kill and feed himself. The really good news is that he does have the possibility of um, maybe finding a mate. There will be other wolves out there in the area, so there's the risk that he may end up in a territorial fight with another pack. Like Other packs don't necessarily accept a lone wolf coming into their territory, and they will often kill them. So there's risks, but also there's a possibility for him to maybe live out the remaining few years of his life in a wild state and where he belongs. So I'm really hopeful that that is what his life looks like and uh, that he lives as long as he can and uh, can look after himself. For AM980, CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. All right. Excellent report there by Claire. I really enjoyed that. The tale of Takea, the lone wolf.